the Zodiac crimes terrified citizens of the Bay Area and confounded authorities searching for the killer. In the summer of 1969, the Zodiac sent a cipher consisting of 408 symbols and demanded that local newspapers publish his puzzle. Days later, the killer wrote again to check on the progress of his game and asked, By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? Bay Area residents tried to solve the puzzle, while local, state, and federal investigators were all drawn into the hunt for the killer. Donald and Betty Harden saw the killer's cipher in the newspaper and then spent hours studying the symbols in search of the solution. They cracked the code and contacted police with the deciphered text, which began with the words, I like killing people because it is so much fun. The deciphered message did not include the killer's identity as promised, but the entire episode served as a perfect illustration of the Zodiac's power. After murdering three people, taunting police by telephone, and bragging about his crimes in handwritten letters, the Zodiac demonstrated his ability to control the public, local newspapers, and many law enforcement agencies. He threatened to kill again if his cipher was not published, and fear ultimately forced newspaper editors to comply with the killer's demands. The Zodiac's claim that his cipher contained his identity created the expectation that his coded messages could include important information which could help solve the case, and some observers believe that even the words in his letters might be cryptic clues. The killer knew the impact of his words and the power he possessed, and his next cipher marked the beginning of an unsolved mystery that still haunts the world 50 years later. Fifty years ago, America's most famous serial killer mailed a cryptogram that to this day has baffled codebreakers. Could you print this new cipher on your front page? I get awfully lonely when I am ignored. So lonely, I could do my thing. The greeting card. A sick joke, you might say. Enclosed was a cryptogram or code as yet unsolved. They were apparently from the man who has killed five or perhaps more persons. Like I have always said, I am crack proof. This is Zodiac A to Z. On Monday, November 10, 1969, two envelopes arrived at the offices of the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper. Postmarked November 8, p.m. in San Francisco, the first envelope had two six-cent Franklin D. Roosevelt stamps and was addressed, SF Chronicle, please rush to editor. Inside, the sender had included a humorous greeting card. Produced by the Forget-Me-Not American Greeting Cards Company, the Jester's card featured a dripping ink pen 
and the words. Sorry I haven't written, but I just washed my pen. The writer added his own message below. This is the Zodiac speaking. I thought you would need a good laugh before you hear the bad news. You won't get the news for a while yet. P.S. Could you print this new cipher on your front page? I get awfully lonely when I am ignored. So lonely, I could do my thing. The Zodiac underlined the word thing many times, as if his message needed reinforcement. At the bottom of the card, he also added a score. Des, July, Aug, Sept, Oct, Seven. The envelope also contained another cipher. The 340-symbol cipher was an ominous taunt from the killer. The cipher was sent to the FBI, where cryptographers labored to decipher its meaning without success. In the decades since, experts and amateurs have tried to crack the Zodiac cipher, but the killer's puzzle remains unsolved. Fifty years after the killer sent this message, computer programmer David Aranchak of ZodiacKillerCiphers.com talks about the Zodiac's 340-symbol cipher, one of the most baffling clues in true crime history. Welcome back to the show, Dave. Thanks for having me. I thought it would be great to get you to come back to talk a little bit about the Z340. Sounds great. There's certainly a lot to talk about with regard to that cipher. In our first episode, you described the Zodiac's 408 symbol cipher as one of the most interesting ciphers in history. But the Zodiac's 340 is one of the most baffling ciphers in history. Most certainly. it's uh, We're coming up on 50 years of that thing not being solved, and it continues to elude the top minds in cryptography. It continues to be a, a big target for cryptographers and puzzle enthusiasts. It's like the Holy Grail in a lot of ways. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a very famous unsolved cipher. It frequently appears in top 10 lists that come around every now and then, the top 10 unsolved ciphers or cryptograms. And uh, it's also at the top of an FBI list of unsolved codes. Can you tell us about how the 340 cipher was constructed? Well, it, when you look at it, it seems very similar to the previous cipher, the 408. It has a lot of the same mysterious symbols laid out in a very neatly arranged grid format. Mm-hmm. And uh, the dimensions of the grid are even very similar. It's 17 columns of symbols, and uh, the 340 has 20 rows of symbols all in one part. So it's a, it's a one-part cipher uh, compared to the previous cipher, which had three equally sized parts. So they, they have that same similar grid formatting. They look similar. Yes. Yeah, they look very similar. So a lot of people thought maybe it's uh, using the same type of encryption that the first cipher used, namely the um, simple homophonic substitution, where there's a key that assigns plain text letters to each of the symbols. And then by applying the key, you get the, uh, the, the hidden message. So far, no one's been able to come up with an adequate solution that way, using the 340. Uh, there was also a lot of talk at the time, and actually continuing to today, of trying out the 408's key on the 340 mm-hmm. in order to 
try to figure out maybe there's a message in there related to the 408s key and that there's some way to to get a message out of it using the same thing. But attempts along those lines have failed. And there's actually mention of that in the FBI files when the FBI performed their cryptanalysis back in the late 60s. They tried a bunch of different things related to applying the 408s key to the 340. You know, when you when you apply the key in the substitution, you get a bunch of gibberish out of it. It just looks like um, nonsense. But in the FBI document, they made the point to observe that the plain text frequencies of the gibberish actually match the expected plain text frequencies of English. Basically, what that means is if you took some English text and you mixed it all up, you would still have the same frequencies of letters. For instance, the letter E is the most common letter in English. Mm. So you would have more copies of the letter E than you would any other letter. And so that's what they're saying about the plain text that comes out when you apply the 408s key to the 340 is that somehow it's matching the uh, expected frequencies of the English alphabet. And that's interesting because if there's some kind of manipulation of the message going on before the symbols are applied, then that could explain why the message looks like gibberish because you have to reverse that step in order mm -hmm. to get the original message. So they went down that path a long time ago and never found a particular manipulation that, that yields a, a good solution. But it's interesting to me that that keeps coming up in the investigations on this, on this cipher. So do you think that's some sort of indication that it is an actual cipher because it does follow this sort of pattern? It, it may be. Um, I think there are specific things about it that make it seem like it has a message. There's repeating patterns that appear in the ciphertext when you look for um, repeating symbols. In the 408, you find a lot of pairs of repeating symbols together because that's how the English language is. There's a lot of redundancy in the English language where patterns are repeated, like um, the letters T, A, and H often appear together. Mm -hmm. Words, you know, the, this, that, there. Uh, it's a very common pattern. So when you substitute it with symbols, then that pattern isn't hidden very well. Mm -hmm. So the the cipher will hide the identities of the original letters, but they don't necessarily hide all of the indications of the underlying language. So mm -hmm. those clues from the underlying language kind of peek through. And that's part of how the 408 was, was cracked initially, is the, the hardens who cracked it, they noticed some of those patterns and uh, exploited them to come up with their solution. So the patterns in the 340, those kinds of patterns seem to be uh, less prominent so there's not as many of those repeating pairs of symbols. But if you look at them in what's called a periodic way, where you look at a symbol that is, say, 19 positions away from another symbol, and you count up the repeating patterns that way, there turns out to be a lot more than you would expect. So that's some indication that there might be uh, some kind of transposition or uh, root cipher going on, where some process is being done to the original plaintext before the substitution happens. It's not slam dunk evidence, but it's, it would be very weird if there was no message and yet those patterns were still emerging through the ciphertext. Now, how is the 340 different from the previous cipher? Some of the symbols look the same, the formatting looks the same, but how is it different? One of the ways the 340 is different than the 408 is the cipher alphabet. The cipher alphabet of the 340, you know, the symbols that he used, uh, a lot of them are very similar 
to what he used in the in the 408. He reused a lot of the same symbols, but he added different ones. He added some new ones. There's like 16 symbols that he used in the 340 that don't appear in the 408. And uh, overall, the alphabet is bigger. There's 63 different symbols total in the 340, but the 408 only has 54. So what that means from a cryptographic perspective is that the key is longer. You have more symbols that you have to assign plain text letters to. So the problem becomes a little bit harder from a, from a code breaking perspective. Um, some other differences are the, the 340 was mailed in one part on, on one sheet of paper compared to the 408, which had three different parts. And, you know, he had mailed those to three different newspapers. In this case, he just made the one cipher and sent it to one newspaper. Um, but uh, apart from that, the, the ciphers are very similar. And what can you tell us about the efforts to solve this cipher? Well, actually, there's some detail in the um, FBI case files pertaining to what they did when they tried to break the um, 340. As I said earlier, they, they tried to use the 408's key. So that seemed to be the first thing they wanted to try was they, they thought, well, maybe he just reused the same key. So they applied the key and found that, I, I guess this is a surprise, but the key produced a plain text that was gibberish, but had the same frequencies as the letters in English. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like maybe there's, there's a message in there, but it's just kind of scrambled up by some kind of transposition. Transposition just means the message has been uh, moved around, like pieces mm-hmm. of the message have been moved around. For example, you could write a um, you could write a message in a square, but then you can copy it to your um, cipher by reading along the columns. Mm-hmm. So instead of reading it from left to right, you're reading it from top to bottom. So you end up with this sequence of letters that doesn't make sense. But the frequency of the letters would be the same. You know, the number of E's in the messages would be the same, you know, even though one is the original message and the other is uh, the manipulation, which looks like gibberish. So I think that sent them down the path of trying different combinations of steps. The 408 basically only has the one step, which is you write down your message and then you assign symbols to, um, to the plain text letters and then write your cipher based on that. So, for for instance, anytime there's a an E in your message, you you pick from uh, one of the symbols assigned to E, such as a Z or the backwards P, the plus sign, and so forth. Um, what the FBI tried was the combinations of steps. So they were thinking maybe there was some kind of um, linear or root transposition. Which is that's the phrase. Those are the phrases they used in the files. Linear transposition is what I think that means is you take chunks of the original message and then you rearrange the appearance of the letters. So the locations of the letters change, mm-hmm. but but they're done in a certain pattern. So you can take like groups of of letters and then rearrange them in a in a repeated way. So once you know what that pattern is, you apply it over and over again. To get the uh, to get the message, um, and then root transposition or things like, you know, read the message from left to right, and then right to left, and then left to right, kind of like a snake pattern, mm. or back and forth a zigzag pattern. That's an example of a root transposition, or like diagonal would be 
you know, reading off the message diagonally. So in those situations, you would end up with a plain text that doesn't look like it makes any sense. And then the last step there would be to, to encrypt it using the same kind of substitution used in the first cipher. So the symbols are assigned to each of the letters. That seems to be what they were investigating when they got a hold of the 340. And they did things like they looked for what's called cyclic use of variance. And what that means is, for instance, when you look at the 408, to hide the English letter frequencies, the cipher author assigned more than one symbol to the letter E, because E is the most common letter in English. If he hadn't have done that, then if you only had one symbol assigned to the E, then that clue would stick out like a sore thumb to code breakers when looking at the cipher. They could see, oh, this symbol is happening more than any other symbol, therefore it has to be standing for the letter E. But to counter that, the homophonic substitution gives you the tools to assign more than one symbol to the letter E. So that's what that's what he did in the first cipher. He's assigned seven different symbols to the letter E. But he did it in a systematic way. So you have a list of symbols like Z, backwards P, W, plus sign, and so on. And anytime he came across a letter E in his plain text message, he substituted it with the next symbol in that list. So he went through the list of symbols in order as he was going through the substitutions. And that's what they're referring to when they say they examined the 340 for cyclic use of variance. Hmm. The, the cyclic means you know, going through the symbols systematically in order. So that's a type of pattern that you can detect if you look for it. And then the variance just means there's a variety of symbols being used for the same plaintext letter. And then a, a couple of other things they tried that's mentioned in the documents uh, are they basically slid words around, words and phrases. That's also known as cribbing, where you expect certain words or messages to be to appear in the message. So since it's Zodiac, he's probably talking about killing. He may be referring to specific crimes or boasting about something. So they used a lot of those kinds of phrases and tried to plug them in in different places to see how the rest of the cipher um, responded to it, basically. So you could plug in expected phrases and see if anything recognizable pops out anywhere else apparently didn't really lead anywhere. And then they also tried what they refer to as anagramming, which I believe has to do with transposing the, the plain text into the, um, the transposed version, like a, a manipulated version of the plain text. You can use anagramming to try to restore the original pattern of, uh, of transposition. Obviously, none of these methods have worked, and the cipher remains unsolved 50 years later. And I know you've worked very hard to try to solve this cipher. What can you tell us about your methods and your theories? When I first started on this about 11 years ago, I started where a lot of other people started, which was, let's treat this thing like a standard simple substitution cipher, a homophonic substitution cipher, just like the 408 was. So I built my own software tools to to try to attack the cipher that way. And other people were doing the same thing. They were building computer programs that would be basically good at solving those kinds of ciphers. But, you know, they, they all fail, including mine, on the 340. And here we are 50 years later, 50 years of people trying to crack it with that assumption that it's constructed the same way as the 408 and having failed in that 
that leads me to believe that it's not strictly a homophonic substitution cipher. There must be something else going on with it. So I kind of backtrack from that perspective of trying to crack it like a homophonic substitution. And I focused more on trying to collect information about the ciphertext. So basically what I found was there wasn't a lot of information about the cipher, apart from news reports and books that were written on the case. But there were these Zodiac forums, you know, yours, as well as uh, ZodiacKiller.com and uh, Mike Morford's site, ZodiacKillerSite.com. And there were a lot of people talking about the ciphers. And every once in a while, someone would post some interesting observation that had some scientific basis or that had some some factual basis. It wasn't just speculation. It was you know, something something interesting, like a somebody discovered some behavior of the ciphertext or a pattern or some kind of statistic that was interesting. So from a scientific perspective, you, you want to, to gather those facts in order to run experiments. If you have a hypothesis on how the cipher is made, you should have all the information first. So I started a website, ZodiacKillerCiphers.com. And that came out of my frustration that that information was kind of all scattered all over the place and hard to find. There's no good reference for all of it. So I tried to make a reference on my site that lists all the useful information about the ciphers. Um, so that was kind of this, the next phase of my research. More recently, I've been focused on the essence of the problem, I think. In, in my opinion, the, the essence of the problem of cracking the 340 is nobody knows what kind of cipher it is. So people have been guessing over the years what they think it might be, what kind of cipher it might be. And having made those assumptions, they'll go and try to crack it, but they'll get nothing out of it, presumably because their guess was off the mark that, you know, it's not this particular type of cipher. So they're cracking it that way won't produce a result. So I've been really interested in the general problem of how do you determine what the type of the cipher is? And, you know, in the history of code breaking, that's, uh, that's a big topic. When you intercept the enemy's communication and it's encrypted, you have to figure out what kind of encryption it's using. You know, so there's a long history of cryptanalysis that concerns itself with, well, what clues do you pull out of the encrypted text that might indicate what kind of cipher it is? In the case of the Zodiac 340 cipher, it, it's very unique because he uses the what looks to be homophonic substitution. He has more symbols than there are letters in the alphabet. Uh, but apart from that, there's not much to go on. There's a couple of interesting patterns and, and clues within the ciphertext. There are these backwards L shapes that repeat, and then there's the what's, what, what's called the periodic bigrams, which might be an indication of a periodic key. So from, from a code breaking perspective, that means there's a certain kind of cipher that, that uses a key that repeats. And uh, that use of a repeated key can leave clues in the ciphertext, and the, the 340 might have some of that. But we're still kind of at the beginning of trying to determine what ciphering system might have been used uh, for the 340. So I've been exploring using machine learning methods that basically take a bunch of test ciphers and then try to automatically guess what steps have been done on them before the symbols have been applied. And uh, th that research is just beginning, but it, I think that has a lot of potential for, for giving some insights into what might have been done for the 340. 
there is one theory that proposes that the Z340 was intended to be rearranged before it could be solved. So uh, a while back, uh, Dan Olson, he's the, the chief of the CRRU in the FBI, which is the cryptographic records and racketeering unit, something like that. They're the, um, the crypto group for the FBI. So they get handwritten ciphers from prisoners and stuff like that, and they have to figure out what they're saying. If they're planning crimes, you know, they're hiding information pertaining to crimes in those messages, and, you know, people making drug deals and, and the information about the drug deals uh, are being encrypted in these homemade messages. So they do a lot of stuff with that. They also do um, some counterterrorism stuff. So they'll intercept encrypted communications between terrorists and they're trying to figure out what they're saying. And uh, so they, they're involved with a lot of aspects of uh, cryptography. But Dan made a TV appearance where he, he talked about what they thought was happening in the 340, which was that it was supposed to be split into two halves. So you take the top half and the bottom half and you put them side by side. And he was saying that they thought the actual message was in the first three lines if you put them together side by side. So the, the first three lines of the first part right next to the first three lines of the second part of the cipher. He said he thought the rest of it might be gibberish, the rest of the code might be gibberish, but the statistical properties of those first three lines seem to indicate a, an actual message. But he couldn't say if the message continued past those three lines, so it could very well be gibberish. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have tested that theory over the years and have turned up with nothing. They've even gone as far as making homemade messages that are constructed that way. So you, you would take a plain text and split it into two halves and then encipher it using symbols and then reverse the process and you know, without knowing the key, try to figure out what the message is. And the techniques for doing that are very effective. They can come up with the original message of the test ciphers, but they still can't do it for the 340. So that, that theory hasn't really worked out. There might be some other step that's involved that we haven't discovered yet. And it may be exclusive to Zodiac's, like maybe he came up with the idea, or maybe it's related to some technique of classical cryptography that, that people haven't tried out yet. So there's a lot of possibilities there still. But it was interesting that they made a, a public appeal based on that idea. Uh, maybe they thought somebody in the public would figure out what the um, what the plain text was based on that knowledge because they, they didn't come up with the plain text themselves. So obviously, here we are, 50 years later. It remains unsolved. All these people have been trying over the years to find the solution. I've often wondered if the reason that the 340 was so difficult and has not been solved might have something to do with the fact that the 408 cipher was solved very quickly in a matter of days after it was published in the newspapers. And maybe the Zodiac thought that was too easy. Maybe he wanted it to be drawn out a little more. Maybe he wanted a little more drama and excitement around it, and he thought maybe this was over too quick. So he constructed the next cipher to be a little more difficult and maybe made it too difficult for us. Do you think there's anything to that idea? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think that's a strong possibility because surely he saw in the newspapers, you know, the news that, his first cipher had been solved so quickly by, you know, it wasn't someone in the FBI, it wasn't someone in the police, it was a high school teacher and his wife. And they 
just took a weekend and a few days and figured out what the uh, plain text was. They, they, they cracked his code pretty quickly. And so the articles also also mentioned the weaknesses in the ciphertext that they used as clues to figure out what the message said. And so that would give Zodiac some ideas about what to change. You know, the repeating patterns that appeared in the 408 were clues to the underlying plaintext. So he may have made some steps to remove those repeating patterns in his new cipher. Um, it's very possible. It's also possible that the, the 340 doesn't really have a message. Mm -hmm. But I think it has a message because it would be hard to make a non-message. It would be hard to make a fake cipher that has the statistical properties that the 340 has. It has some indications of underlying language that would be very unusual for a cipher that's just a hoax or doesn't have any anything to say. Yeah, and that brings up a good point. I've often heard people saying that the fact that the cipher remains unsolved is somehow proof that it's just gibberish and just busy work. But you think that's not the case because the cipher itself has some characteristics that would not be present if it was gibberish. That's what I think, yeah. Uh, I think it's still possible that, that it could be gibberish. I mean, he could have done something that could give language-like clues in the uh, enciphered text without actually using language. You know, maybe just putting random repeating letters, like chunks of repeating letters in different places. That could give the false impression that there's some repeating words or phrases in the underlying message. Um, so that's still possible. Mm. And it's hard to rule out. But uh, one of the things I've been doing in my machine learning research, basically the idea is in machine learning is instead of trying to program the computer to come up with an answer for you, in this case, the question is, what kind of cipher is this? Traditionally, you would approach that problem from a computer programming perspective by creating a recipe, otherwise known as an algorithm, that can look at the input, that is the cipher, and make choices based on statistics, clues, and different information about the ciphertext, and go through basically a recipe to go, okay, it's this kind of cipher or it's this kind of cipher. But machine learning is a different approach. Machine learning is, instead of you coming up with the recipe, you're forcing the computer to try to come up with a recipe. And the way it does it is you give it a bunch of things where you know what the answer is ahead of time. So you have a pile of ciphers, let's say. You have a pile that is just the homophonic substitution and it has a real message. Then you have another pile that uses some kind of transposition before the substitution is done. And then you have another pile that's all gibberish. They look like ciphers, but there's no message in them. They're just random text. And then you train the computer to figure out how to come up with the right answers. And eventually it gets better and better at coming up with the right answers. And then you tell it, okay, well, what's your answer for the 340? So you give it the 340. And one of the things I discovered in, in my experiments is that it really doesn't think that it's gibberish. Because I had a pile of test ciphers that were all gibberish. And the way I made them was, there were two different ways. One was to just create a bunch of random letters in English, you know, just, just pick letters at random until I had 340 of them, and then encipher them using the using homophonic substitution until there were, you know, 63 different symbols being used. And then the other way was just to take a, a cipher and scramble it. 
So you just shuffle it like a deck of cards. And then in both cases, you just you just have random symbols. And the, the classifier that I trained got really good at telling the difference between real homophonic ciphers and the gibberish ones. And when I showed it, the 340, it really thought that it was not gibberish. It gave it an extremely low probability that it was gibberish. And I, I thought that was interesting, that it seemed so confident that it was not gibberish. So that, that's one of the reasons why I don't think that it's strictly gibberish. But it's, you know, it's still possible because the way that I'm making gibberish might be different than the way Zodiac's making gib gibberish. Yeah. You know? yeah. So uh -huh. there's, there's always that little possibility that there's something that we're not testing. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting question. It's really hard to prove that a, a cipher is a hoax or gibberish, especially since we know that Zodiac was able to create a real cipher. The first cipher is a real system and it works. So he would be able to make a second one. There's no reason he wouldn't be able to make the second one, but he still could be just screwing around with people and putting them on this 50-year journey, <laughs> which will waste their time. As you mentioned in the previous episode, there have been ciphers which have remained unsolved for decades and even hundreds of years. That's right. There's um, one of the famous ones is the Copial cipher, which I think was like 200 years old. It was um, not too long ago cracked by Kevin Knight and his team. That one was a, a homophonic substitution cipher that had gone for a long time without being solved. I don't know if it got as much attention as the Zodiac cipher, but they came up with some pretty unique methods for solving it, and that, that was a big success story. So, I mean, we might, be, we might be here for another 50 years before somebody finally has the eureka moment or has the right technology to, to crack the 340. Well, I hope that's not the case because I'd like to be around to see the answer. Yeah, you and me both. Thanks for doing the show, Dave. Thank you for having me. Zodiac. A to Z. Written and produced by Michael Butterfield. Featuring David Aranchak of ZodiacKillerCiphers.com Zodiac Voice by John Knight Zodiac A to Z Produced for ZodiacKillerFacts.com Zodiac Killer Facts .com.